Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. When we're competing with another outlet, whether it be The Post or WAMU or DCist for a story, that forces us to think about our angle and what, what additional interview can we do, what additional reporting can we do. And that competition really benefits readers in D.C. And I, so I think all journalists, you know, you, you hate the person that gets your story better than you, but you don't want them to go away, I don't think. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media. And uh, this is uh, sort of our follow up or our prequel or uh, I think this is like a Star Wars. What number this is? I'm not sure because uh, we've got Alexa Mills back in the studio. Welcome back. Thank you, Michael. And I say welcome back and nobody's actually heard the other interview yet. That's actually going to be a part of what we're doing here today. I sort of teased to it in last week's episode the the reason why we sort of held Alexa's episode. I should also say that uh, Nicole Ogrisco is here as well. Hey, everybody. <laughs> so, but anyway, back to Alexa. You reached out to us right as we were in the production of putting the final pieces on on your previous interview, saying that uh, the Washington City paper is for sale. Yep, that's what happened. Um, we were for sale. I found out we were for sale last Friday. And then shortly after, I realized, oh, no, I don't want... Michael to publish a podcast that is out of date. So okay. I called you back. Right. Yeah. And uh, most of the podcasts, as you'll hear, you know, we talk about a lot of other things about some of the stuff that you did before you came to the city paper. But, you know, I understand. Yeah, of course. Let's let's go in. And, and the fact that the, the city paper is for sale, I mean, that's something worth talking about. I mean, I think you said before we turn on the mics, it's been a bad week for alternative newspapers because the LA Weekly is also up for sale. Yeah. And, you know, actually, I know so little about, I have, you know, gotten the snippets that other alt-weeklies have faced sales or different things this week, but I actually know so little about them that I almost hesitate to say. Yeah. The point is, you know, this is not news because uh, not too long ago, you know, the city the city paper in Baltimore had gone up for sale and, and they've been sort of trying to figure out a nonprofit model. So what's been the reaction of uh, the city paper staff here in D.C.? You know, the interesting thing is that I think within city paper, the edit side, at least where I am, we it's been we've been really high energy. I said right away, you know, there's no profit in us being sad sacks. We love journalism. So let's have a great time reporting and let's have a great time seeing if we can figure this out. So, you know, our Regular writers have been stayed 100% focused on their beats, except for my one who happened to be on a, a rare vacation and missed uh, most of this. But Jeff, our Loose Lips reporter, and Laura, our food reporter, um, have been full force ahead in their beats. My arts editor, Matt Cohen, sort of took on the subbeat of starting to cover the sale and cover our options. So he's been super busy and everybody else inside, you know, we've just been working really hard. The city paper has, uh, I mean, there are a lot of alums who are still in, in journalism. Do ha have any of the previous editors reached out to you? Yes, I have spoken to every previous editor um, who lives in D.C. And they were supportive of me from well before the sale, just giving me advice on the role and during the sale. 
two out of four of them, maybe even more, lived through a sale. So they had a lot of information and ideas. So, so just because there's a sale doesn't necessarily mean the paper's going away. It just, you know, it's going to change ownerships. There's going to be something else, I guess. You know, no one knows the future. I don't. But my read is that city paper could go away. I mean, or it could shrink or we could reinvent it. So I think those are the three basic scenarios we're seeing. So it certainly it's tough times for, for the alternative press anyway, whatever whatever the turnout is in here. What is What are your thoughts about that, about, you know, sort of the state of the alternative press at this point? You know, I, I know about city paper. I'm there every day. I'm not an expert on the alternative press nationally. But what I will say is that I think at city paper, you know, talking with my staff yesterday, we feel like we are we have the alternative press DNA. And that means a lot of great things. But we also feel like we're D.C.'s local newspaper. We cover less than we want to. But we see a world where we actually, you know, take on more beats and really become even more so D.C.'s local newspaper. The Post does less and less every month with local. Their focus, thank goodness, is on national and they're killing it. But we are killing it locally. We dominate in our beats, which are, you know, food, housing. And then, you know, Jeff Anderson is loose lips. I mean, he's been doing pieces recently on guns that no one else is doing. And that's our thing. I mean, there's a world where we have an education reporter and we're killing it in education too. Or, you know, I have a reporter on staff who wants to be a social justice reporter, cover what are people doing locally around the increase in protests? What is the situation of uh, local immigrants? These kinds of things. We'd love to do health. I'd love to have a sports reporter, you know, so and more. I, I mean, I'm just sort of listing off the top of my head, but I mean, you know, we could go on or there could be a conversation with the public about what kinds of news you know, what news beats they want. But, you know, I think that all weekly, there's a paper in New Haven. We wrote an article about it, City Paper, this week. It's called The New Haven Independent. And it was an alt-weekly guy who, in 2005, his name is Paul Bass, I guess he saw the writing on the wall in New Haven, you know, changes in the way information is delivered. He ended up launching a new site called The New Haven Independent. It's an online-only news site. And what he said, I think he said in our article, was that he had the DNA of an alt weekly, but he's New Haven's, you know, he's a new the news site. So I think that's one way we're thinking about it. So I mean, I think maybe you've sort of elaborated on that and talking about a lot of the things that the city paper does. I mean, what happens? What is to DC when it loses this this sort of strata of coverage? That's a good question. I mean, um, D.C. gets less coverage. You know, I don't know. I don't know, you know, who fills the gap. But I will say that I think that competition um, is important in news and that, you know, one thing we've heard from other outlets is they do want us there. I mean, D.C. has put an article out about what our situation yesterday, um, you know, when we're competing with another outlet, whether it be The Post or WAMU or DCist for a story, that forces us to think about our angle um, and what, what additional interview can we do, what additional reporting can we do. And that competition really benefits readers in D.C. And I, so I think all journalists, you know, you, you hate the person that gets your story better than you, but you don't want them to go away. 
I don't think. So I think that the media market for local news in D.C. is not saturated. And we want to stay there. We want to participate. Okay. And have you heard from the public at all about this? Has has the news spread enough so that you're starting to get feedback from your readers? Yes. Our social media guy, (laughs) Will, yesterday at the end of the day said it was our biggest day for social media he's ever seen. Um, We've been publishing articles, other, you know, you know, as I mentioned, DC has put something out, Washingtonian had put something out a little bit earlier. You know, for what it's worth, we've heard people saying, don't go away. You know, we hope you're, we hope you stay. It's um, just that easy. <laughs> just tell you not to go yeah, away. Yeah, we've heard, I mean, with the article we put about, about the New Haven Independent as well as a newspaper in Austin, Texas, it was about the two. They have the same model. They had a nonprofit model. We put out that article and people said, oh, you know, I'd pay for city paper. Um, I'd pay for a subscription or, you know, a, um, basically volunteer donation, reader donation or a subscription. Um, so, you know, that doesn't that sentiment does not mean that it's necessarily going to happen. There has to be a plan. There has to be a, an action to get there. But that's the basic sentiment. So is there a timeline that's there now as to what's going to happen and when? Timeline that we have is our parent company, Southcom, is asking for, I think, like initial offers of interest from prospective buyers by November 1st. So that's a really short time with the goal of a sale date, I think, by end of end of the calendar year. So I think they said December 29th. Um, but anyway, that's the basic. November okay. 1st, want to know you're interested. So how does something like that affect uh, the news process for you guys? So you said that you're covering yourself, but what what, is, what does it mean for long-term projects and planning? I mean, I book covers three months in advance. So right now we're booked through uh, about early Feb, I think, early February. I mean, everybody's working on their articles. The rest of the book, the rest, I mean, the long-form stuff, yeah, we plan three months in advance, but... Our regular writers are moving with the news, so they don't plan that far in advance. They're just working. So how big a staff do you have? I think I might have asked that in our last interview. We are 10 on the edit side. Um, with That includes a staff photographer, Daryl Montgomery, 30 oh, years Darryl. documenting DC. You know, it includes a design person and an editing and, and reporters. It could be nine. I think it's ten. I never know if I'm counting myself or not. So I, I get that number off. So – you know, you, you started as the editor not too long ago. I mean, what what are your thoughts about yourself and your career and moving forward? You know, maybe it's tough that, you know, what plans can you make when everything seems so uncertain? You know, I decided to become a journalist when I was 32, which is both old and it was in a period of time when journalism, you know. Yeah, you picked a sucky career to get into. <laughs> So I think that I came into journalism truly out of passion. Um, I job job security was not my expectation. I don't. That's not my framework even coming into this. So, well, you got that lack of security. <laughs> so I mean, we're just living in the moment. Um, you know, I mean, anybody can become a freelancer. I, I truly don't know. I don't know. I mean, right now we're working on city paper. Okay. So. All right. Well, um, we're going to go ahead and sort of fold this into the the previous interview that you did. Alexa, thanks for coming back in. This has been great. I wish you luck. We're going to keep in contact and touch with you to sort of see how this unfolds, and maybe we can do some sort of follow-up. All right. Thank you. Thanks for coming in.
So uh, we met at the Association of Alternative News Media's annual conference here in D.C., had a real pleasant conversation. And one of the things I remember when we were talking is you had kind of an unconventional, maybe it's conventional, maybe a lot of people don't know about it, but you didn't go to journalism school. You didn't set out to be a journalist. You know, How did you get to be the editor of the city paper? Well, um... this is where you answer. <laughs> I mean, it's been a long road. Um, my first job out of college was here in D.C. I worked in the victim advocacy unit at the city courthouse, working with people who were looking for an order of protection from someone who's abusing them or stalking them. At that time, it was almost all women seeking orders against men. And I don't know if that has changed in years, but it was a tough job. It was a burnout job. I was super young. I ended up going back home to Boston after about two years and went on to grad school in city planning at MIT and had a tremendous experience there. I graduated from MIT right at the sort of height of the financial crisis. The sort of predatory lending story unfolded while I was in school and the economy was really bad. People's feelings about the economy were really bad. And MIT offered me a full-time job doing me media production about cities. So there was a position within a little lab called Community Innovators Lab right in the urban planning department. And the, the director, Dana Cunningham, said, just come in and create stories about cities. And, you know, she had grant money. And so I went right into it. I loved her. I loved the work. I did it for about five and a half years. But... I was itching to, I mean, I was among scientists, you know, I was among city planners and it was MIT and you'd say, I'd ask someone, what do you think about this sentence? Or, you know, is there a better way to tell the story? And you just get sort of a blank stare, you know, comparable to when I ask my colleagues about math now at the city paper. <laughs> the answer is like, you know, I don't do math. At MIT, it was the opposite. It was sort of like, I don't do sentences. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be part of an industry and, and be getting better at a craft. So I tried to switch to journalism and I did. And it was really hard. It was really, really hard. What was what was hard about it? Was it just a, you're, you're in a completely different lane now trying to think differently? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was in Boston. I mostly tried and did write for the Globe. And I was just standing outside this. It was so many different things. I was completely confounded by how you would get an article in the newspaper uh, like, it seemed like rocket scientist, science to me. How do you pitch? How What do you write? Why did editors not write back? I mean, at MIT, you would write back to every email. It would be very strange to not return an email you got at MIT. And editors don't return emails all the time. I couldn't understand why someone wouldn't just write back. I cared deeply what they thought of me which was a new experience at MIT. I never really, I mean, of course, I wanted to be respected and do a great job, and I did, but I never really thought about, you know, what does this person think of my work? And in journalism, I was concerned with what a certain editor might think. And that was hard, I think, psychologically. So it was a lot of things, but it was a journey. It's funny, uh, you know, writing, uh, reporting, editing, you know, it, it's so personal in, in, in some ways. And so it's so much of a reflection on on you and the effort you put into it. And, and hopefully the idea that you, you want to better yourself. So you, you're hoping for some feedback. Some of it's 
some of it's emotional, but some of it is also just technical. You, you know, why? Well, especially you, you talk about, you know, editors not returning. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of all the emails that I don't return. Do you, are you returning emails? No, I was thinking about this. I, <laughs> I, do, I can't. I really can't. <laughs> now you know. Yeah. And I mean, I think I, I probably, I don't know if all my experience helps me be sympathetic at all. I mean, after, I mean, there's only so many minutes in a day and, um, I don't respond to all of them. So you ended up at when we met you. Uh, you were the managing editor at the uh, City Paper. How did you end up there? I had been writing, so I did a. I ended up, you know, it was so tough. I made the decision. I applied to some journalism schools, and um, well, I applied to Northeastern University in Boston. I didn't apply to Emerson or BU. I got it in my mind that Northeastern was the right place. And they welcomed me and they were very generous to me. And I did that program, you know, just working, uh, working on the degree evenings. It took me, I think, three years. I'm not sure. But there was this idea that you were, I was to do a final project. And I'd been working with the Northeastern University Law School. They had a program there. This woman, Professor Margaret Burnham, her life goal or the goal of her, her program is to do restorative justice for lynching victims and especially like unknown lynching victims of the 30s and 40s. And she's researched, she's had students research hundreds of these cases and they're law students and they look for to restore justice in some way. And she had a tough case and I'd worked with her on a case before that my reporting, I didn't write the story, my reporting went in the Globe. And then she had this really tough case about um, this young man, uh, Felix Hall, 20, from Alabama, um, enlisted to serve in World War II, ended up going to Fort Benning and was lynched on base. And the the information we had, I mean, was that this was a, he had been doing very well in his unit. He was well-liked. He was a very outgoing person, a person with a lot of friends. And the question was who lynched him and why couldn't the FBI solve the case? So I researched that for quite some time and the Washington Post ended up taking the pitch through Northeastern and I published a story and that put my name in front of a Washington audience. I don't think I'd ever tried to really write, not really write for any national publications and the editor-in-chief of City Paper, Liz Garrigan, tweeted the story. And about a month later, I was coming to D.C. to sort of meet with my post editors. And they had me do a little talk about my research process with, in, you know, with other journalists there. And um, so I emailed Liz and said, you know, I'm going to be in D.C. And it seemed like she had a loose lips position open. So I said, is this loose lips position open? I'll, you know, I'd be I'd be willing to apply if it is. Um, or I'd, I'd like to apply. And she said, no, um, that's actually not open. But what I do have open is a managing editor. And do you want to apply? So I said, sure. And I did. So was that uh, an editing position or was it was there some writing involved, reporting? I did write a little bit. I mean, I did a major story and a couple of minor stories, but um, I probably spent more time editing. So the major story you're alluding to is the, the Slumlord story? Yep. Well, let me back before we get into that. Let me sort of back up to the lynching story, the the one that you did for the Post, and they brought you in to talk about the research that you did. Could you sort of talk about uh, with that process? You know, what what did that involve? 
the the research not talking to the post <laughs> researching this lynching was really slow it involved a lot of patients well first of all professor burnham at northeastern is like an expert in researching 1930s lynching so you're working with someone who knows more about how to find information that about that than anyone else but in that case with Felix Hall, the first thing was to get the FBI file, and it was a massive file. Um, and because the FBI did an inv- investigation, most lynchings the FBI doesn't usually investigate because they're local things. This was on a military base, so the entire document set was pretty much in the federal government. So, yeah, I mean, you, you put in a document request with the FBI at, uh, through a FOIA and then you wait three months, four months, five months, six months. I mean, I think the FBI's volume is enormous. I don't know. I mean, I mean, we did so much. I went to the National Archives in College Park and just looked through documents, correspondence between generals, correspondence between leaders on the base, um, helped a lot. At Harvard Law School, I got the papers of William Hasty, who was really high in the War Department. He was an African-American person. He ended up quitting because he they treated him like a puppet. He was just the only black guy in the department at that time. And this was in 41. The military didn't integrate until 48. What else did we get? I ended up getting the papers of a white Southern journalist um, in North Carolina. His name is escaping me, but he was one of the few papers that he, he wrote an article for the nation about this lynching. Um, the the um, College Park National Archives has an entire lynching file, multiple lynching files. So I sorted through those and was able to find multiple letters to the president regarding public outrage that this particular lynching hadn't been solved. So there were a lot of documents. The real win was finally the VA. An archivist in the National Archives has locations throughout the country, and the archivist in St. Louis, Corey Stewart, amazing archivist, found this 500-page VA file on Felix Hall, his record, and all the years, all the fights his family had with the military to make sure they did, they paid them what they said they would, which they, they did pretty much. That was a huge find. That file enabled me to tell readers that Felix Hall had grown six inches between the time he arrived on base and the time he was killed which was an incredible detail and just showing that this was just a growing young man, so young. And then finally, the FBI named a number of suspects. And I, the Post said, well, find the suspects and find, if not find their children, find out who did it. And we, we didn't. I think I know who did it now, but we didn't find confirmation. And I got paired with this researcher at the Post, Alice Kreitz, and together, Alice and I, I mean, working, you know, we would email like Friday nights at nine finally, and found the children of every suspect, every FBI agent, several other people on base. I probably, you know, I was able to talk to a number of people who grew up on Fort Benning. One woman, Pearl Follett, lives out in Washington. She remembered the lynching. Her stepfather had been out hunting in the woods of Fort Benning and seen this body. And come home really shaken. You know, there's a body in the woods. And she, Pearl, was 12 at the time. So that, with all that, you know, of course, I think Alice Kreitz was able to find 
Pearl's phone number. So that that's how we put it together. So that, this seems like an incredible amount of information to have been able to get on this story that was, you know, decades old. How long did you work on that? You know, that's in the, you know, my mind doesn't serve me well. I probably worked on it at least more than 12 months. Uh, yeah, I worked on it about a year. Um, but another law student, a law student who I never met, her name was Zahava Stern, had worked on it a year before that. And then she graduated and handed over what files she had. And then I built on that all that, you know, she hadn't found relatives yet, but she had... She had a sliver of the FBI file, and then we got more. So this woman, Zahava, laid the foundation. So it was really hard. So what was the final form of that? Page one, Sunday. I think it was about 4,000 words. Um, the online presentation. Uh, with that VA file, we had photographs of the young man hanging. He had hung for about six weeks in the woods. That His body has been left there. Wow. So we had those photos. Didn't publish the most brutal of them. I had a map of the base. So we had a video of Professor Burnham talking about these cases. So what was your, your takeaway for, of that process of researching and writing? You know, what did what did you, how did you feel about it? What did it mean to you? Uh, it meant so many things. I think career-wise, I, it, you know, frustrating as this is, I mean, I had 15 job interviews after that came out. And it was sort of frustrating because I was like, come on, guys. I was always good, you know. You. <laughs> yeah, I hear um, you. But that's the way it is. You know, that's the way the world goes. I spent eight years of my life at MIT, so I know an elite name goes a long way. And so that was interesting. I think I learned an awful lot reporting-wise. Great, tremendous editing from my editors at The Post, Alan Cypress and, and Cameron Barr. And on a personal level, I... But I struggled and still do with the idea of heaven, actually. I knew from the files, had a very detailed description of the final moments of this young man's life. And I'm raised and am Unitarian Universalist, which isn't a faith that has a strong vision of the afterlife or even commitment to it. Surely you can be an atheist Unitarian or you could be a faithful Unitarian. And so I think personally that was the, the greatest, just really thinking very, very hard about whether this person could have been welcomed into the arms of some god or if there was some other step for him in life or in death. So do you feel a degree of frustration at not knowing, or, or will you know, but not being able to report who the um, the killers were? Yes. You know, I think that naming... Um, in the case of any tragedy, naming the perpetrator is part of justice. Um, and that's an aspect of justice that has yet to be served in this case. And that was frustrating. Uh, from a writing perspective, it was frustrating because I think the story would have been a different structure if we had solved it. And that was frustrating. But, I mean, just the, the layers of injustice involved in this case were frustrating. I mean... At one point, I think I hurled my pen at the wall of my apartment and it shattered. And I remember months later finding pieces of this pen. <laughs> so there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, shattered pens behind journalists' couches. <laughs> it's just um, it was really a case where you're seeing these this correspondence in, in high up in the War Department now called the Department of Defense. It's like just. Seeing that institutional racism where you're looking at these letters between a white guy and a black guy or I don't know, 
and it's hard it's hard to describe yeah and what's interesting is if you think about that actually serves the story as well showing the institutionalized racism that you know these are the structures which were investigating this very racist act yeah and they were imperfect yeah and uh you know that that is is one of the layers of the of that type of story yeah. so let's let's fast forward to you know is it 2016, 2017, for the the big story that you uh, wrote for the city paper um, had to do with the slumlord. Could you sort of talk about the, how that came about and sort of what the scope of the story was? Yeah, I almost thought of the story before I even got to city paper. I had had a job offer and Liz Garrigan gave me a month to move because I wasn't local yet. I wasn't here in D.C. And so I was like sitting on the couch at my father's house in Massachusetts, my father and stepmother's house, and I was reading City Paper and getting to know. And I was reading an article by Andrew Giambroni, who I ultimately collaborated with the story on. It was about Congress Heights, which is a Sanford-owned collection of buildings outside the Congress Heights metro station. And it was just talking about the horrible conditions. And it was about this um, tenant there, Mr. Green, who we've written about again. And he was <laughs> Mr. Green was killing rats with his heart medication. Um, <laughs> but there was this little tiny detail that Andrew had in the story, which was that Mr. Green had a voucher for his unit set at like, I can't remember, but it was like more than a thousand dollars. And that just really struck me like. If Andrew had written that Mr. Green's rent was $400 or $600, I don't think I would have thought twice about it because I would have said, okay, well, it's D.C. I know the market. And and if you're paying not too much, your landlord might not be able to give too much. But you got a voucher for over a thousand bucks at Congress Heights. I think it didn't make sense. Why isn't this property in good shape? And so that was our question. And I came to City Paper and I think I mentioned this question. It probably took me... Two weeks of adjusting, asked the question, and Liz just said, okay, we'll find out. Go ahead, guys. Do it together. And so what was, you know, how did that develop as a story? What was, it was uh, Sanford Capital was the name of the company. And sort of tell me the scope of that. I think the first thing we did, I made this spreadsheet, which I still go back to today, which was the list of all of Sanford's properties, what they bought them for, what they're appraised at. And then we started going to the the properties. We met with, you know, the attorney general's office. They were pursuing cases on two of the properties, and we just started learning more and more. So, what was the 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 quote unquote scam of it? That that he was just uh, charging more for what the properties are worth and not putting any investing back into it. Yeah. Two things. I mean, so I, I started with Mr. Green, who had a voucher, but actually a huge number of Sanford tenants pay rent. Maybe a lot of people will have like a $900 rent bill, which, of course, is really cheap for D.C., but not if you're working at McDonald's, not if you're a school bus driver. And so we've every property it was, you know, I went to these properties. I would go all the time. I went to Belmont Crossing. I went to Terrace Manor went to Congress Heights, I went to Tivoli Gardens up near Fort Totten. Um, and it was always the same. You know, you'd talk to tenants and either one way or another, they had really high rents, whether they were paying or they had a voucher. And in every case, the buildings were same things. You know, front doors don't lock. That's a huge deal. If your front door doesn't lock and you've got a little kid, 
you know, if your front door doesn't lock, whoever you are, you're that's your line of defense that would welcome vagrants in. I mean, tons of these properties had had vagrants in them. Real typical thing was the laundry room worked. Sanford took over the property. Gradually, the laundry rooms were closed. And then, you know, the laundry room door would be open so that vagrants could live in it. So, you know, it was really consistent across the properties, what you'd see. You wrote how many stories about this? Oh, my gosh. I have no idea. Maybe 30 uh, more. I don't know. Did it generate any recourse? Did it lead to any outcome in in the courts? There was a victory recently. I mean, Sanford's legal strategy has been to fight just tooth and nail. They are fighting every every single thing they think they can fight. I think they, they battle. So the case against Terrace Manor ended up in bankruptcy court in sort of a questionable way. Like, is is, is Sanford really bankrupt? Um, are they they're bankrupt on this property, but they also, you know, we got the eviction records. So they strategically evicted everyone. And then they weren't collecting rent. And then a few years later, they claim bankruptcy. You know, so anyway, ultimately, you know, they rounded up these buyers to buy Terrace Manor for $6 million, which other developers say is way over market. And these developers proposed, well, we'll renovate the units at $20,000, which is a joke, right? That's like slap some paint on and and carpet the floors. And finally, a big D.C. developer named W.C. Smith that owns almost all the land around Terrace Manor and uh, owns a great deal of property in D.C., ponied up the $6 million. I don't know if they thought it was over market or under market, but they decided to renovate Terrace Manor for 175000 a unit. I don't know if that's what, like eight or nine times the uh, renovation cost that Sanford sort of chosen buyers. And so W.C. Smith, a private developer, ended up stepping in. There were nonprofit developers who were interested, too. It's a win for Sanford because they got this massive price. And it's a win for the tenants because the tenants did always want W.C. Smith as their landlord. So, But it's not it's not going to be one of these situations where the, the developer comes in and tries to gentrify it, tries to go for a more upscale tenancy. You know, I don't think so. I think that W.C. Smith, if I understand, I mean, in a very genuine way, is going to make a nice property and move the tenants back in. I really actually believe that. But what the future holds, I mean, W.C. Smith owns huge amounts of land in that area. And what they'll do with it one day, I don't know. You know, I mean, certainly not today. I don't think that's not what's going to happen. But in 20 years, I, I, I couldn't say. So do you think you'd be writing like this if you didn't have that sort of urban planning background? Um, the urban planning background helped with Sanford a lot. I mean, more than anything else that I had, like, a team of, like, five real estate developers that I knew personally that I would call all the time and say, well, is this normal? Is this normal? I mean, I had one colleague actually make me a pro forma spreadsheet, which is a pro forma is a typical real estate developer spreadsheet, which I've made in school, but I hadn't done it for eight years. And so I really I, I understood how these properties cash flowed. You know, I knew a lot. And so that helped. And that, that did help. But it was starting from square one, too. I mean, we studied a lot. Andrew Jambroni, who I did this with, and I studied a lot. Yeah, well, it's a new city. You need to know the ins and outs of the The, the laws. City. Yeah, the laws. And Topa, the you know, the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act is just a weird D.C. law, I'm pretty sure. There are a lot of weird D.C. laws. Yeah, <laughs> so we had to learn Topa. There are other Sanford properties. I mean, Tivoli Garden, um, which was a Latino-majority property, 
at Fort Totten. Um, MANA, a nonprofit developer, bought that. But again, I think MANA met Sanford's purchase price. So again, Sanford got cleaned up, you know, after giving these tenants nothing for years. And MANA is in the process of doing a good job for these. You know, when we first met, you were managing editor and you were about to become the editor of the city paper. So what has that transition been like? The first three weeks were steep learning curve. I think when, you know, I knew I was going to be the editor, I knew when Liz was leaving. And I think my reaction was to just like take a few days off, stare at the <laughs> wall. I feel like I knew it was coming, but I wasn't going to try to beat it. The horror. And is. so, <laughs> you know, day one was... I'm sure I was in that office 14 hours that day, you know, just the first two weeks, I barely left. There was one morning I woke up at 2 a.m. and walked to City Paper. Yeah, you were really uh, optimistic because when we were we were supposed to talk about two months ago and then you wrote me and says, "Uh, I think we better push this back a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think you you were in the full weight of it and you said, yeah, maybe I better be working on this. Yeah, I was like, wow, how am I going to get to 3400 Idaho Ave? I mean, (laughs) the idea of leaving my desk was not really a great idea that, you know, for those first three weeks. But... After that, you know, Labor Day weekend was a rest. And then it's been, you know, it's we're working really, really hard. The other thing was we promoted up our managing editor. Uh, Caroline Jones, the managing editor, had been City Lights. So then we were down City Lights. And that, you know, that created. So my managing editor was doing two jobs. And I was trying to do this whole job that Liz did without, you know, um, really a full person to, ha- to, to be my managing editor. So. Now all that's ironed out. Well, good. And we're, we're full capacity. So what do you see as the, the role of the city paper? I mean, this is you're in D.C. There are a lot of journalists in D.C. There, But, you know, I think the city paper has a, a sort of particular role in how it, it covers the city. What do you, what's your take on it? I think city paper's job is to be authentic. I think city's paper's job is to be the paper that's willing to be a little rough and tumble a little rough around the edges, a little more likely to take a risk. I think it's our job to have the best arts coverage in the city, um, which I think we do. And our job is to get news, you know, and be real about it, to not, you know, bite the press release bait too much unless it's really something our readers, I mean, sometimes, you know, a lawsuit comes down, the ACLU calls and tells us, and it is really important for our readers to know that. So, you know, I'm not like against completely press releases, but um, there was certainly no press release that said Sanford Capital was a giant, massive, you know, slumlord. That'd be a terrible press release. <laughs> yeah. But well, I mean, you know, maybe maybe the uh, attorney general would yeah. would beg to differ and say we tried, we sent that. You know, we'd been reporting on Sanford, and the Post had a long time. I think that that article and then the Post article, what they pointed out was that the the scope of the problem was much bigger than anyone had really expected. And the city had its hands in, in it much more than anyone expected. Now, the the, the, the city paper is also its you know, alternative weekly. And, you know, the alternatives have been pretty taken in on the chin a lot in the last, you know, five, ten years. So what, what are your concerns about, you know, the industry, about, you know, the role of the alternative press? You know, I think it's a really it's important. It's at the it's at the front of my mind. We have a great corporate parent at City Paper called Southcom. I'm in touch with some of the other editors in, in their alt weekly portfolio, but of course you can't escape. I mean, we know 
about the Baltimore City Paper. We know about the Boston Phoenix and the Village Voice. And we're really thinking about it. I think one of my top goals is to look at other funding sources. You know, I mean, everybody knows this. The alt-weeklies were built on classifieds, and those dollars are gone. Um, So we're looking at different ways that our readers can participate financially. We're looking at grants. Oh, we do, I mean, from the sales side, we do big events, not just ads. So I think we're looking at everything. I would love to see Alt Weekly stop hemorrhaging and be on the other side of that. I think every market's different, but just sitting in the city paper offices, I mean, there's stories we give up every day that we just don't have someone who can do that. Um, I'd love to be getting those stories. I mean, if I if I hired two people, um, they could fill a beat in a second. I can think of three beats I'd like to fill. So, you know, I think there's space for it in D.C. We have great local coverage, but I think it could be a whole lot better across the boards. So I don't know. You know, maybe that's pie in the sky, but I, I think the stories are there. The talent is there. There's journalists out there. Yeah. And, the, you know, we've said this before on the podcast. I mean, the, the Post is a, is a pretty big deal, not just in D.C., but, you know, across the country, across the world. And they don't always they don't always look what's at their feet. They, there are a lot of things that they, they're unable to cover because they're like every publication, their resources, their focus are elsewhere. And so there are opportunities here uh, to cover, you know, alternative press type stories in in depth and detail. I mean, the Sanford one is a, is a great example. You know, music and arts and other, you know, traditional thing for for alts to sort of own. And so there are those opportunities. So I, I take it you've, you know, are you hopeful then for, for where you want to go? Or yeah. just realistic? <laughs> no, I am hopeful. Um, I'm hopeful. I have ideas. I mean... I've only been in the hot seat for six weeks. I had a call with a professor at Northeastern who I knew, Dan Kennedy, who's written whole books on um, money and publications, and he gave me a list of people to call. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it is in the forefront of my mind, um, for sure. And, you know, I can't say that I've ever done it before, so I don't know what's to come. But, you know, I just, you know, I'd love to see dedicated education. Um, you know, housing fills a beat. Obviously, that's something we've got. We've got food. We've got an arts section. Um, there's a position that used to be the at the um, city paper that was called City Desk, and it was like a catch-all. And now we fill it in City Desk. I mean, every staff member will do a City Desk every so often. But you know, that was that's a fun position. General assignment at Alt Weekly. You know, so. I'm definitely hopeful, um, and we'll see. Alexa, thanks for coming in. This has been great. Thank you. Next time on It's All Journalism. How are we playing into someone's hands as media, potentially, if we don't know the origins of a story, the origins of as juicy as it might be, and of leaks, I think, now, because there's so many leaks coming out that end up shaping narratives, too. It's like, well, what are the motivations there? What's the back, back, back story? And that's what I think, in terms of... You know, kind of getting to what Ben was saying earlier about what we could do as an industry is not participating in that and actually really better understanding within every newsroom, how is this potentially shaping my community? Join us next week when I talk to Mandy Jenkins and Benjamin Decker of Storyful. I caught up with the two of them at the recent Online News Association conference here in Washington, D.C., 
We had a great conversation about how newsrooms can fight fake news. Do you enjoy listening to the conversations we have here at It's All Journalism? Why don't you um, donate to our Patreon campaign and help us continue the conversations about digital journalism and where we're going as an industry in the coming years. Go to itsalljournalism.com, follow the link at the top of the page, and donate what you can to show your support for our podcast. But wait, Mike, what's in this for me, you might say? Well... Fellow producer Nicola Grisco and I are working on something big, and we're going to be having a big announcement in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. Remember, look for new episodes of It's All Journalism on Thursdays, and uh, you can find all of our episodes at our website, itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. And I discovered recently that you can listen to our podcast on the Alexa Home Speaker. Go to the Alexa app on your phone and enable the Spreaker skills and then ask Alexa to listen to It's All Journalism on Spreaker. This week's episode was produced by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render a huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.